a therapist reviewing another therapist. What could be better than that? Especially when one therapist, me, seems to find little relevance in the self-help market, the thing the other therapist, Lori Gottlieb, is trying to promote. Manning versus Gottlieb. It's its own type of female mud wrestling. We have two women. Oh, but minus the sex appeal, the mud, the homoeroticism, and the sexist overtones. But hey, who's counting? Especially when we're talking about self-help. Because in order for self-help to be relevant, it has to be understood that it's subjective. And as something that is understood to be tailored to the individual, who knows? Maybe mud wrestling for some is as cathartic as steaming the vagina is for others. Yet despite how personal helping the self can be, the most common question for those seeking to improve their lives comes from those we're typically surrounded by. Those that use their last nerve to suggest to us, maybe you should talk to someone. It is a reasonable question, and one that leads to answers. The problem is, sometimes those answers you trust to be truly helpful actually end up with more questions. Do I need to talk to someone? And is that someone supposed to be a therapist? If I talk to a therapist, will I like myself in the morning, even after a night of raunchy mud wrestling? But when we talk to someone, that someone usually being a therapist, we can skirt around these questions. We're fearful of asking the wrong question, leading to the wrong conclusion, and potentially a diagnosis that leads to us being crazier than we thought we were. Too many questions, too much confusion, when what we really need to be asking is, what's in it for me? Welcome to What's In It For Me, the best self-help book reviews of the best self-help books from 2019, reviewed by me, Michelle Manning. And we're continuing our series by reviewing Lori Gottlieb's best-selling, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, a Therapist, Her Therapist, and Our Lives Revealed. So, let's take it from the top. The cover. One of the reasons I wanted to start the review here is because there's not that much to say. At first glance, it's difficult to determine what the cover image actually is. At first glance, it's an orange cube with a white pillow on top. But upon further inspection, you can see that it's a graphic design of an orange box of tissues, playing right into the most symbolic image of therapy, the tissues. As I said, there's nothing too remarkable about the cover, nor was there anything remarkable about the introduction, primarily because there wasn't one. Introductions, as you know, set the tone for the reader. But as a reader, I can find introductions to be patronizing, a way of instructing the reader how to read the book rather than relying on the actual content of the book or even the reader's interpretation. Without an introduction, I trusted Gottlieb to be trusting that her content would provide all the information the reader needed. There was just one problem. I wasn't really sure what I was needing. This book was listed as number two on Goodreads' list of 2019's most popular self-help books. But without an introduction, it wasn't clear what Gottlieb was helping, improving, advising, or teaching, which actually made me excited to begin reading. The book is divided into four parts, and only the chapters within each part are titled. The titles are random and provide no real context. If the Queen Had Balls, and Hold the Mayo, just to name a couple. 
And yet, even though I wasn't quite sure of Gottlieb's objective in regard to self-improvement, it was in the first line of the author's note where Gottlieb asks, how do we change? And then answers with, in relation to others. So is this book about change? Is it about how to do it? Do we need to? Should we try? This is where I was running into trouble. I'm simple. Now, I don't want to brag, but the simpler the concept, the easier it is for me to comprehend. And unlike Rachel Hollis's Girl Stop Apologizing, where she simplified self-improvement as living shame-free, Gottlieb seemed to be more focused on life, living, and our relationship to both, possibly implying that change exists in here somewhere. Where Hollis's book reflects a second-person point of view, similar to an instruction manual telling us what to do, Gottlieb's is written as a first-person narrative, telling us what she did, describing her impressions, reactions, and the perspectives she develops in relation to others, others including her patients, family, friends, and her therapist. Some chapters begin with a chart note on a specific patient she then goes on to characterize. And through this patient coming to life, we can see her reaction in relation to them. On page three, she introduces us to John, the subject of her chart note. She also introduces italics representing her own self-talk in relation to John, her patient. Have compassion, have compassion, have compassion, she italicizes. She then writes, I'm repeating this phrase in my head, like a mantra, as the 40-year-old man sitting across from me is telling me about all the people in his life who are idiots. Godlieb is relating to her work with her patients, in this case John, and herself within her work, being very candid about her perceptions, writing about John. I can't get a word in edgewise, even though he has come to me for help. This is precisely where I fell into a trap. Godlieb is a beautiful writer, and this comes by her honestly. On page 68 in part one of the book, Godlieb titled this chapter, Goodbye, Hollywood, more than likely because of how much time she spent there. Godlieb worked in the microcosm that is Hollywood, first as a motion picture literary assistant, and then at NBC, working on TV shows Friends and ER, before she ultimately said goodbye. Her talent lends to the narrative, making it very easy for the reviewer to get lost in the story rather than focused on what the story is actually saying about self-help. And what I can glean as a simple person attempting to break down what she's trying to say about change and how to do it is that relationships are a reflection of ourselves. A handy concept, but not really a mind-blowing one. However, what I lack in sophistication, I make up for with impatience and I was anxious to keep reading. She's a good writer, and good writers are good at expressing their points of view, something I wanted to delve into looking for ways in which to help the self. And then it hit me. Strike one, page nine. In order for the self-help to be relevant, it must be inclusive. Or maybe I'm just simple. If we understand that self-help is subjective, then its relevancy also depends on inclusivity for one very important reason. 
People who generally seek the support of self-help are seeking support after years and years of disenfranchisement. Years and years of being excluded from the relationship because I don't date people with baggage. Years and years of being alienated from the family because if you'd kept your mouth shut, we wouldn't have had to deal with child protective services. And years and years of a boy is a boy and a girl is a girl and I don't give a fuck how you feel inside. Yet Gottlieb strikes out on page nine when she states, one of the most important steps in therapy is helping people take responsibility for their current predicaments because once they realize that they can and must construct their own lives, they're free to generate change. Godley then goes on to say, on page 9, People carry around the belief that the majority of their problems are circumstantial or situational. And then on the same page, Gottlieb continues to swing, but whiffs with, If we can step out of our own way, something astonishing happens. What the fuck? Sometimes I don't know if I'll ever deem a self-help book relevant because of this very exclusionary point of view that seems to be pervasive in all of these books. But... If I had let my impatience buzzkill on page 9, I'd never have gotten to the hit. The one Gottlieb made on page 18. As a reviewer, I try to be as objective as possible, and I don't always succeed. Case in point, I find personal growth and change more valuable when I feel included, especially when that feeling of inclusivity is gained through modeling, showing us not simply telling us. Sometimes it's supportive and inspiring when you recognize you're not the only one. On page 18, Gottlieb, in her beautiful narrative, describes the self-consciousness many patients experience under the lens of a therapist. They feel insecure, vulnerable, and potential shame as to what could be discovered or exposed. It's here Gottlieb does a good job of describing that everyone has this affliction, even her writing, it strikes me that people I'm talking to at a barbecue or dinner party don't seem to wonder whether they might see me and the qualities I too try to hide. As a reader, I actually took a deep breath, grateful that my own insecurities were not too far from hers, which set the course, a course I was beginning to be intrigued by. Maybe that strike on page nine could be redeemed. And prior to page 37, I'd have had more faith. But then she had to go and hit a foul ball. Not a strike, but not a hit. On page 37, I found myself mutating from reviewer into therapist, a very impassioned therapist, when Gottlieb described what we therapists all know as the high-functioning patient. High-functioning, she writes, is code for a good patient, the kind most therapists enjoy working with, she continues. The kind who don't call daily between sessions with emergencies. She goes on to state, Most therapists prefer to work with patients who are verbal, motivated, open, and responsible. These are patients who improve more quickly. I can't second strike Gottlieb for this one, because she's right. Hence the foul ball. 
Most therapists want to work with someone, well, like Lori Gottlieb or Rachel Hollis. People have pretty good lives. So good, in fact, that only they can impede their growth. There are no circumstances or situations to get in their way, which turns our foul ball into a strike. Two, if you're counting. Now, as therapists, we're trained to work with every population, the cultural awareness shit. Godley would even attest to this because we pretty much have the same licensure and academic background. But when we, in the helping professions, write self-help books, the only ones who seem to be writing them are therapists that don't really seem all that cultured. Their message is whitewashed, and anyone who knows a thing about marketing knows why this is the case. It preserves the brand. Lori Gottlieb is a brand, just like Rachel Hollis is a brand, and both have long waves of what the kids are calling mermaid hair. Maybe this is a requirement of the brand, who knows? Point being, the more generic the message, the more appeal it has to the masses. Great. But in practical application, it's only relevant for the few. The few like Gottlieb. So, what is it to be like Gottlieb? The second strike on page 46 gives us all the deets. I have a child I adore beyond measure, she writes. I have a career I enjoy immensely. I have a supportive family and amazing friends I care about and who care about me, she writes. There is nothing wrong with being this lucky or privileged, but luck and privilege are a lens we see the world through, and both have a tendency to level that playing field in our world. And despite how many lucky and privileged people try to deny it, playing fields aren't level. Not an issue just a fact. It's not something to atone for or resent, to apologize for or redeem. It's just a fact. And contrary to popular belief, playing fields are something we're born onto. We don't choose them, and changing them is almost impossible because life doesn't give you a leveler. In my experience, if your playing field isn't level, you have one option. Bust a nut running to one that is. You know, the one at the top of Nine Mile Hill. Oh, and when you get there, sweaty and out of breath, the self-help gurus waiting for you are wondering why you're so tired, then assume it must be because you're getting in your own way. Gottlieb should know this. If she doesn't, she sucks as a therapist. If she does, she sucks as a self-help guru. But her writing doesn't, so I read on. Allowing Gottlieb's prose to take me places Rachel Hollis's never could all the way to page 78. Strike three. Gottlieb's out. But I'd forgotten, Gottlieb writes on page 78, that people are often at their most interesting when they've got a proverbial gun to their head. Strike three for being tone deaf. Therapists that don't suck are typically not tone deaf because therapists that don't suck pay attention. They pay attention to the fact that high-functioning clients are really low-functioners in disguise. They pay attention to the fact that more people have had literal guns to their heads than I'd ever like to admit. Therapists that don't suck also pay attention to the fact that bad things happen to good people, rich people, pretty people, and yes, white people. 
Situations and circumstances can bring a gun to the head, whether you're in your own way or not. Trauma can happen in a high-functioning household, no matter how long and wavy your mermaid hair. Low-functioning behaviors, responses, or experiences are not the result of lack of motivation, standing in your own way, or not pulling up hard enough on your bootstraps. They're the result of fucked-up experiences, many of which involve guns, or emotional warfare, sometimes the most damaging kind. For Gottlieb to use a gun to the head as a metaphor is analogous to using sexual abuse or assault, almost like saying, metaphorically speaking, people are at their sexiest when they're being sexually exploited. I know I'm being a bit dramatic in my comparison, but am I, though? If the patients that Gottlieb works with are truly just struggling to pull up harder on their bootstraps, as a reader, it's beneficial to know because in all honesty, pulling yourself up by the bootstraps is easy. But this struggle requires a distinction, a distinction between want and need. There are those, Gottlieb included, who want therapy. Then there are those who need it. And those who need it are much different from those who want it something Gottlieb doesn't seem to comprehend. Need motivates change, desire, progress, and improvement more than want ever could. And if Gottlieb comprehended this little inconvenient fact, she would also comprehend that most clients aren't struggling trying to pull up harder on their bootstraps. They're struggling because the situations and circumstances they didn't ask for are telling them they have to design the boots, make the boots, size the boots to fit, oh, and (laughs) do it all with no materials. They need therapy to teach them how to do this, teach them how to do something Gottlieb never had to learn. But maybe in our last segment of the podcast, Gottlieb can get schooled. When you're trying to do a book review, especially one promoting self-help, it's more enriching if what has been deconstructed is then reconstructed. It's one thing to break down or deconstruct a book or message in ways that doesn't serve the consumer, but the consumer doesn't truly become informed without a true compare and contrast, a true reconstruction. We not only have to take a look to see what doesn't work, we also need to figure out what would. What would work if Gottlieb didn't suck? So let's look at the first strike, the exclusionary factor. That's probably what I'm going to call it now that it seems to be pervasive in books like this. These brands, Gottlieb's and Hollis's, are failing to do something that in all honesty is very easy to do. See people. You don't have to talk to, know the name of, or address every issue that affects everyone. You just need to include. As any concertgoer knows... Every good live performance becomes great when the fans in the back are acknowledged. I see you back there in the bleachers! When the city you're in, or think you're in, gets a shout-out. Hello, Cleveland! Or even when disparities are illuminated. The cheap seats can clap your hands. Everyone else, rattle your jewelry. It's that easy, and it even preserves the brand. Self-help gurus don't need to alienate the high-functioners they all want to appeal to, but they do need to see us in the bleachers just by simply acknowledging our presence. 
This has the power to turn the brand from a decent enough rock show to one that will save the world, leading us to strike two, or rather, how Gottlieb could have avoided strike two altogether, avoided it with one little step. Stop fucking telling us how perfect your life is, and I'm speaking to you too, Hollis. When your playing field is leveled by love and support and adoration and money, being the guru of how to change and improve your life isn't that much of a stretch. And Gottlieb would fail to be so tone deaf if she just acknowledged this. Like the improvements suggested in our last review, Gottlieb just needs to level with us. Tell us how the luck and privilege of your level playing field greatly contributed to your own self-help. Tell us how not having this type of luck and privilege could be an obstacle for ours. As anyone who has made and or observed true sustainable change can tell you, simply knowing that my obstacles are different from yours is a better way to motivate helping the self than presuming our playing field is the same. And lastly, in Reconstructing Strike 3, real shit, like guns to the head or needles in the veins or hands on your body that you never consented to, happens to everyone. Not just low functioners, not just high ones, but everyone. So in asking of this book, what's in it for me, such simple suggestions might result with something a bit more inclusive, a bit more like, it's a good read with some good tips I'll use when my circumstances change, rather than, it's a good book that I have zero use for. Thanks for listening, and make sure you stay tuned for our next review of Karen Kilgriff and Georgia Hardstarks, Stay Sexy and Don't Get Murdered, The Definitive How-To Guide. I wonder if they can guide us in how to stay sexy if we didn't really start out that way. For more musings, opinions, or low-functioning perspectives, visit my website, michellelmanning.com. See you next time!